This is Martin Lindstrom, author of The Ministry of Common Sense, How to Eliminate Bureaucratic Red Tape, Bad Excuses, and Corporate BS. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know, and named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever situation you're in, send me a connection invite on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. Speaking of LinkedIn, this episode is sponsored by LinkedIn Marketing Solutions. Every marketing campaign starts with one simple question. How do I ensure the people I want to target will be in the mindset to receive my message? And the answer is LinkedIn, where business gets done. To get a $100 advertising credit toward your first LinkedIn campaign, visit linkedin.com slash marketing book, linkedin.com slash marketing book. Terms and conditions apply. I'll mention more about that in a few minutes. Now, let's get on with the show, shall we? Today, we welcome back Martin Lindstrom to the Marketing Book Podcast, talk about his book, The Ministry of Common Sense, How to Eliminate Bureaucratic Red Tape, Bad Excuses, and Corporate BS, published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Martin Lindstrom is a well-known international management consultant who routinely sees various kinds of corporate constipation all over the world. Over the years, he has learned how to quickly pinpoint and then eradicate these bothersome hurdles in companies of all sizes. He's the founder and chairman of Lindstrom Company, a business and culture transformation group operating across five continents and in more than 30 countries. The author of several New York Times bestsellers, his eight books have been translated into 60 languages. His book, Brand Sense, Sensory Secrets Behind the Stuff We Buy, was critically acclaimed by the Wall Street Journal as one of the five best marketing books ever published. His book, Small Data, The Tiny Clues That Uncover Huge Trends, was praised as revolutionary, and Time Magazine proclaimed his book, Biology, Truth and Lies About Why We Buy, a breakthrough in branding. Time Magazine has named Martin one of the world's 100 most influential people, and for three years running, Thinkers 50, the world's premier ranking resource of business icons, has named him one of the world's top 50 business thinkers. And interesting fact, he opened his own ad agency at the age of 12. Martin, congratulations on the Ministry of Common Sense, and welcome back to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you, Doc. It's such a pleasure to be be back with you again. And the last time we spoke, you were in Australia. You were suddenly caught there in the pandemic, and we talked about the ebook you produced, Biology for a Coronavirus World. And I just have to let the listeners know the extent to which you go for the audience. It was 10 a.m. there. And it was authors in quarantine getting cocktails. You were drinking red wine. And I could see Sydney Harbor behind you uh, in, in, the, in the window. So 
you know, you're, you're always available. And right now you're in Zurich, Switzerland, and it's much later in the day. It is. And do you know what? I don't know if it's me or you, but it's red wine time once again, because it's 5 p.m. here. You always choose those times for me, don't you? Yes. Well, let me go pour some myself some red wine. It's uh, 11 a.m. New York time, but uh, maybe we should- <laughs> We, we should... need these times, right? <laughs> yes. Yes. It's always five yeah. o'clock somewhere. And I should you know, mention you travel, well, I guess until this year, you travel to maybe 80 countries a year. Is that? Have you gotten back to that? This is so crazy. I mean, I'm not kidding when I'm saying prior to COVID-19, I was traveling 300 days a year. And yes, you're right, uh, visiting more than 80 countries a year. Now, I just did the math. Since COVID broke out, um, which is 120 days ago, approximately, and normally I would have been traveling quite a lot. In fact, I probably would have been traveling 100 days and I've traveled five. So the world has seriously you know, changed me, actually for the better, but it's been crazy and amazing at the same time. And do you get back to your native Denmark very often? I do, actually. I mean, I do travel to Denmark. I do travel to normally to most countries all the time. Um, I have to say I'm so blessed that we have customers around the world. So we do connect with them every day. And even though I'm not traveling as much as I normally would, I I, I can tell you one thing. I still feel really connected with the world. Mm, Well, it's certainly easier to do that. And and maybe Martin needed a little bit of a rest from all that travel. Maybe he did. (laughs) I mean, what do you want to choose between endless Zoom meetings or endless TSA experience. Right? <laughs> well, it depends on if I get frisked or not. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> well, don't go there, right? <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Well, let me read an excerpt from the, the beginning of the book and uh, let's talk about it. You write, today it's safe to say we all confront one example after another that attests to the extreme want of common sense in our world. I certainly do. As a global consultant, I am ostensibly hired by organizations to create or fix brands. But nine times out of 10, I find myself serving as an organizational change agent, bringing to light and resolving corporate blindness and miscommunication, terrible customer service, products that make no sense or don't even work, packaging that sends us into a rage, and a general lack of intuitiveness, both offline and online. I can confirm that the disappearance of common sense is at epidemic levels in companies, not just in the United States, but everywhere. So Martin, how was it that you came to zero in on common sense that bedevils so many organizations? I think the best way to describe that is to take you back in time. Many years ago, the former, former CEO of McDonald's, Charlie Bell, he reached out to me and asked me if I wanted to reinvent the Happy Meal. And I said to Charlie, absolutely, if I can make it healthy. And Charlie was a good man. He said, yes, you go for it. So I had a vision. I wanted to make six-year-old kids eat broccoli. Go figure. I'm like, this is ambitious, right? <laughs> so we started off by creating a narrative around fruit and vegetables. We had the broccolis, were the forest trees. We had the cucumber that was the murder weapon. You had the tomatoes that was the blood. And then we created these amazing stories in partnership with Pixar. And guess what? The kids loved it. The parents loved it. The uh, franchisees loved it. It really was a huge success. 
So I went to the headquarter of McDonald's outside Chicago and they looked at me and they said, that's interesting. Now, I'm not Native American. I said to people back in Europe, yeah, they love it. They think it's interesting. I think <laughs> it took me a couple of years to learn that word, right? So guess what? Two years later, the new, brave, new Happy Meal was released. And it was, well, the Happy Meal we know today plus an apple. And that was the first time I realized not just what the word interesting means, but I also realized there's more to this. The reality is that that company, along with most companies around the world, are you know, suffering from bureaucratic red tape and bad excuses and a lot of corporate BS. And so we hired psychologists for nearly 15 years to understand what is going on inside these organizations. What is, what is killing creativity and innovation? And out of that, um, something extraordinary happened. Um, so about three years ago, a large bank, one of the top 10 banks in the world, reached out to us and said, hey, can you help us? And during one of these workshops I was doing, um, this lady comes up and she says, I'm so sick and tired of all the BS going on in this organization. I'm leaving. And I said, listen, uh, can't we stay? Should we find a solution? And she said, yeah, sure, I'll do it for you. So we sat down and she said, there's no common sense here. And I said to her, why don't we fix it? She said, so why don't we start up the Ministry of Common Sense? And that's a true story. We literally opened the Ministry of Common Sense. And that became the first real ministry. It's now running in that bank, the Standard Chartered Bank. And uh, it then later on was established in a range of different corporations around the world, everything from Maersk to Swiss. All these companies are today running ministries inside the organization with the sole purpose of cleaning up BS. And it worked. <laughs> That is uh, so interesting, and it's it was almost unbelievable. And I have to say, as I was reading your book, it's extremely entertaining. And it was very funny, but Martin Lindstrom, at times, I was laughing to keep from crying because I've seen <laughs> examples <laughs> of some of the nightmares that you were you were talking about. Before we talk more about this, the Ministry of Common Sense and 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 what they do, let's let's talk about why companies are now starting to start ministries of common sense. Can you tell us the story about how an overcomplicated remote control circled back in your <laughs> mind to an absence of common sense in an organization? I just say that because everyone who's traveling, they go into a new hotel room each day and there's a, a remote control there and you got to figure out how to use it. This is probably one of the most crazy stories ever. So um, I'm in Florida, in Miami. I'm staying at the hotel. I want to watch some television. So I switch on the television, or rather, I try to switch on the television. You see, the bottoms on this television remote control are seriously complex. There's not only two on buttons, there's also two off buttons. And the one you think is meaning on is actually air conditioning systems, right? So I'm trying to fiddle around with this remote, thinking I'm a complete stupid idiot, not getting anything these days. And then I managed to switch on the television. I watch some, some television for a while and want to switch off the television. And it sounds super simple, right? Well, you're wrong. I end up with my butt in the air trying to unplug the minibar and the, car, the coffee maker and the television. And after that experience, I'm sort of thinking, is it me or is it someone else? What's going on here? Anyway, I forget about this. And this is the crazy part of the story. 
So by coincidence, about two months later, I'm on a flight to New York City, to JFK. And next to me, there's this gentleman, and we start to small talk. And during the conversation, he says to me, so um, so what are you doing? And I'm saying, well, I'm helping brands uh, to thrive and transform brands across the world. And I say, so where are you from? And he says to me, I'm from a small company you probably haven't heard about before. I said, try me. He says, I'm from a company called Replay TV. I said, well, I know you guys. I said, what the heck went wrong with you guys? I said to him. And he's like a deer in the headlight, right? So I pull up my PowerPoint presentation and I have a photo of this remote control, right, from the children, which is from his company. And I'm saying, what went wrong? I said, it's impossible to use. And he lights up for a second. You can see he has hope here, right? So he says, well, that's very simple. Back in the days, we had huge internal fights. I know one division was responsible for the TiVo, one for Netflix, one was for the video recording formats, one was responsible for radio, one was for audio, one was for air conditioning, one was for TV. And we had fights about who should run what, the real estate on the remote control. So instead of us doubling up our effort, we, we basically shifted around. We allocated zones on the remote control. So one zone was only for TV and one for Netflix and one for TV, whatever it was. And it was beautiful. We all knew what we wanted to do. And I said to him, yeah. And I don't know how to switch on your television anymore. <laughs> right? And this is really the essence of where we are right now. The essence is that they saw the world from inside out. They have all the bureaucracy and red tape and stretch jackets. What's narrowing the views. They believe their boss is the guy paying the salary. But they forgot about seeing the world from outside in, the consumer's point of view. And I think that's where you see the old guard of companies suffering right now, the commodity players, but also those businesses which have been in business for many years. They kind of are so overprotective of what they're doing right now that they don't really want to change. And that's exactly what I experienced with that remote control. Mm. You write, almost every stupidity and inconvenience we face as consumers can be traced back directly to a faulty or broken corporate ecosystem, one that has abandoned fundamental principles of common sense. How has the introduction of key performance indicators so prevalent in the business world, how has that undermined and uh, destabilized you know, cross-departmental problem solving like you just described at that remote control company? Well, Doug, that's a really good question. And if I take you back in history, it actually began back in the 30s. Um, back then, if you were to define what success, a successful company would be, it would be happy customers earning money, right? Pretty simple. Then back in the 50s, uh, companies wanted to do an IPO. They wanted to go on Wall Street. And nothing against that except one little thing that Wall Street wanted to know more about the companies. I mean, if I want to invest in this company for the future, you better give me some numbers, right? So they had to introduce the quarterly announcement earnings, and they did that. But when you do that, what happens is that you have to break up your organizations into small bite-sized KBIs. One division is responsible for that. We're measuring against that. Another, another division is responsible for whatever. And suddenly, over time, something extraordinary is happening. In the beginning, nothing happens because these divisions were really good at working together, right? So the KPIs, even though they're not aligned, were kind of aligned. 
But over time, each of those divisions or departments and each of those KPIs become single-standing mini-ecosystems going in each of the different direction, trying to optimize the best for that division, but not for the bigger, greater good. And, and the best way to give an example around that is uh, my experience with Maersk. So Maersk is the largest shipping company in the world. They sit on 21% of all trade. And one day I was called to China and we were in a call center. There was around 3,000 people standing there in the call center. And we had some problems because they received a lot of complaints. And for some reason, the NPS, so the net promoter score, the customer satisfaction was really, really low. So we started to listen into those conversations. And I realized something unusual was happening every time. What happened was that every time there was a customer complaint arriving at the call center, the person sitting behind the screen would tick a box saying force majeure. Now, as you know, force majeure is an earthquake or COVID-19, right? It's something serious. But in this case, it was every single form filled out that way. And of course, we couldn't understand why. So we tried to figure out why, and the answer was simple. If you tick force majeure, you only is required to fill out one page. But if you tick anything else, it's three pages. And the call center was measured on time. How efficiently could they handle a customer complaint rather than how happy was the customer? And even worse, guess what? When you tick force majeure, it means that the customer, which may have lost all their shipping products, whatever, they cannot claim it on the insurance because you cannot claim on insurance things which have been ticked with force majeure. So again, that's a really good example about how suddenly the KPIs are running the race because they use that for the quarterly announcements. And this is really where KPIs now are removing common sense and replacing it with nonsense. Yes. So Martin, I've had over 300 books on the Marketing Book Podcast, and occasionally I've been asked to come and speak about, uh, you know, what are some of the common trends? <laughs> and and what have you learned? And uh, I've started to realize over the years that empathy may be the most important word in, in, in marketing and sales. And you've written that the reason we see less and less common sense in the world now isn't as straightforward as one might think. And you write that the lack of common sense in companies and in life has a clear, if indirect, connection to the increasing disappearance of empathy. So can you remind folks what empathy is and what it's not? It's very misunderstood. And explain this phenomenon of disappearing empathy. Absolutely. Empathy is the ability to put yourself in the shoes of another person and see and experience and feel his or her's point of view. The difference between empathy and sympathy is very simple. Uh, if Imagine you're on a ship and it's high C, and you're getting, there's a person next to you, and he's getting seasick. Well, if we talk about sympathy, you will say to him or her, I'm really sorry, and hand over a napkin. But if you have empathy, you'll start to throw up together with the other person, right? <laughs> so so there's, there's a really big distinct difference between those two. Now, here's the issue. Uh, empathy is disappearing in our world. And this is something, this is so fascinating, Doc, I can tell you. It's fascinating because two things. First of all, the reason why we as human beings have become such a powerful species on planet Earth in contrast to animals per se is because we have empathy as part of our brain structure. 
Um, if you take a polar bear, sadly, it will not adapt to the change of the environment. So it will drown on the ice because it takes its 15 generations, I'm not kidding, to adapt to an environmental change, whereas human beings can do it within one generation. Now, why is that? It's because we have the ability to put ourselves in other people's point of view and see what's happening before we realize it. But here's the scary part. What's scary is that empathy levels are dropping down right now. Um, a recent study in the US among a range of different universities is showing that empathy levels have dropped, listen to this, 50% over the last decade among young people. Uh, one of the reasons why is not just that you can't express all sorts of emotions uh, on Twitter using 100 plus characters, right? It's also issues like Botox. Think about it. Botox removes our micro muscles. It means those micro expressions we have where you can see that person if he's laughing or crying, and we're all trying that right now with a mask. Those small muscle changes around the eyes will tell you if the person is happy or not. It's gone. And in fact, recent studies are showing that babies have a less, have a less connection with their, uh, with their mothers when mothers are taking Botox. So that with social media, with the focus on me, I'm the one in the center and the whole world, all the newsfeed is, is gathered around my profiling because of algorithms and robots, means that empathy levels have never dropped more as they are right now, which is kind of scary when you think about it, because it also means that what made human mankind become what we are today is also probably what will do our undoing. Uh, so in the corporate sense, what's even worse is that if I want to work with other divisions or companies or colleagues in my company, I need to be incentivized to do that. And why is that important to work with others? It's very simple. Um, if you want to create great customer service for, let's say, uh, a, an airline company, well, then it doesn't work that you send in your email or you do a booking and then you have to book first the luggage carousel and second, you had to book your catering and third, you had to book the aerobrates and fourth, you had to book the seat. <laughs> All of it has to kind of work together. But inside airline companies, it's one big mess quite often. And when departments are not willing to work together because they are set in this stretch jacket, each of the departments, which are linked with a KPI, there's no incentive for why I should work with other people. Because if I just do well in my division, just like the remote control, I'm kind of happy. And that is the main reason why we are both very unproductive, but also the reason why customer service has never been worse as it is right now in the offline world. And think about the productivity. We know today from our study that our productivity level is so low that only 50% of the time you spend at work is actually productive. Mm. Now, we talked about how empathy is often not understood, and uh, you wrote, you don't talk much about empathy when you're inside an organization because corporate types usually associate the term with sentimentality or crying or cupcakes. <laughs> That's why you address common sense issues in businesses. You use a concept you borrowed from a very famous Hollywood director. Can you tell us about that? I certainly can. So Alfred Hitchcock, when he uh, designed and wrote and shot his movies, he always used a methodology which is called the green and the blue script. The blue script is how things should be set up. It's the props, it's the monologue, it's the lights, it's all the things you see on the screen. 
the green script is what you feel when you're watching his movies. And literally minute by minute, he will map down how you should feel. At this stage, you should feel scared. Now you should feel a sense of empathy. Here you feel a sense of engagement. So minute by minute, through the green script, he will map down how you should feel. And where the blue script basically just will be the tool in order to enable how you should feel in the end of the day. So that methodology is really what quite often I'm looking at. I'm trying to do reverse engineering and again, uh, put on the glasses of the consumer and see the world from their point of view. And it's a fascinating journey because when you see the world from a consumer's point of view, you have a huge task to map down that green script because now you'll feel the frustration when your credit card has been blocked. <laughs> and in fact, you're on a holiday and this is day two. Okay, you call the credit card company and you're waiting for one and a half hour until some friendly soul is saying, we understand your problem. We're here for you. And by the way, this conversation is recorded for training purposes. And on top of that, the person then saying to you, we will send it to you within the next six, seven working days to your home address. While you are right now at the Bahamas, it's kind of far away from your home address. That is frustrations, if you get what I mean. And that is, you know, the fact which is typically due to lack of common sense. Because I don't need to tell you, we know today that 30% of everyone which owns a credit card will lose their credit card through history. So why don't you build a service mechanism around it and infuse common sense? Because that also generates a sense of loyalty. Let's pretend for a moment that you're about to launch a campaign. It tested well. Your entire team is happy. Everything is going according to plan, except for that one thought in the back of your head. How do I ensure the people I want to target will be in the mindset to receive my message? The answer is LinkedIn. Because when you market on LinkedIn, your message reaches people who are ready to do business. And that means your advertising campaign will work as hard as it can as soon as as you launch it. Over 62 million decision makers are on LinkedIn, and that's just one of the many reasons why more than 78% of B2B marketers rate LinkedIn as the most effective social media platform at helping their organization achieve specific objectives. LinkedIn has tools for branding and lead generation. Not only can you target and reach a professional audience down to their job title, company name, and location, but you can engage people you already know based on who's visited your site or who you've contacted in the past. And to make this ridiculously easy to try, LinkedIn is giving marketing book podcast listeners a $100 advertising credit toward their first LinkedIn campaign. Visit linkedin.com slash marketing book, linkedin.com slash marketing book. Terms and conditions apply. When I am reminded of how much you travel, all I can think of is that Martin Lindstrom has one of the highest thresholds for pain. <laughs> no, it's reverse. It's absolute reverse. I mean, I tell you, this book is a compilation of all my anger and frustrations put into this Bible, right? Oh. Of BS, because it's horrible. I mean, they, I'll tell you a story here, Doc. This is horrible. The other day I was flying from, from a place in Northern Europe to Switzerland. And as we boarded the plane, the, the cabin crew announced the following. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome on board on the Scandinavian Airlines. We are bound for Zurich, Switzerland. I am pleased to inform you that all cabin service has been completely suspended. And then there was a pause here, right? 
suspended because of COVID-19. It is for the safety of our passengers. You're not allowed to use the front lavatories. They are exclusively reserved for the cabin crew. But you can, however, use the back of the plane lavatory. There's one lavatory for 172 passengers. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how you define that as common sense. And this is the worst thing. Before we are landing, we have to fill out a form which is a contact tracing form. You know, one of those explaining where you were and where you are in case of COVID-19 breaks out. Now, the first question on the form is, I, have you been cl in close proximity to anyone over the last 24 hours? And I literally can look at the passenger sitting next to me, around one feet next to me, okay? So the answer is kind of yes. The second question is, have you touched anything which anyone else have touched? Now, no one has a pen these days because we all use smartphones, right? So, of course, the first bright passenger in the front of the cabin is asking the cabin crew if he can borrow a pen. <laughs> and that pen is now circulated through the entire plane of 170 plus passengers. So, the answer is yes to the second question. And this is me talking about common sense when it's completely gone, right? Well, at least for you, there's uh, material that you can use. <laughs> You know, I mean, this is this is volume one. Okay, that's right, that's right. I don't think you're ever going to stop. If you wanted just to go in this direction, you could have a whole series of books. But let me go back to um, uh, something where you write. Whenever I run workshops, I ask employees to describe their best, most memorable customer service experience. Regardless of whether I'm in Switzerland, Russia, Thailand, or North Carolina, the same three qualities show up again and again. Can you talk about those things? Absolutely. It is when you are in need, you need someone to help you. Whether you know, you're checking into a hotel and your little two-year-old gets sick and you absolutely don't know what to do because it's 2 a.m. in the morning and the hotel is empty for staff. That's where if that soul pops by from the hotel and say, absolutely, I'm not going to help you because I'm going home now. It's off hours duty right now then you're going to remember that for life. But if the person is going to go the extra mile to say, do you know what? I so feel for you. I actually have a two-year-old at home as well. And I tried that situation. Let me call a doctor. Let me help you. Is there anything I can do? You'll remember that person for life. And what we realize time after time is the best customer service is if you can help someone in need. And that comes back to the very concept of building powerful brands because you can run as many ads as you want for a company, a hotel chain. But if I have a horrible experience just once in there, it will not impact you. So what I tend to say is this in the entire army of people, the culture was defining your brand as well. And what I tend to say is that we have to remember all these horrible moments we had and try to nail down what defined them. And typically there are three things. One is you were in need. Point number two, a person went the extra mile to help you. And point number three quite often is the person showed a sense of empathy. Do you know what? This is super simple. Then try to ask yourself, when was the last time you experienced that? And I bet you, your experience is 10 years old because we don't do that anymore. No, no. So, Martin, I want to ask you a question, and for me, uh, this has very much to do with one of the many things I learned from your book, uh, Small Data. And I even include this in some presentations I make, and many people are in disbelief. <laughs> and that is, explain why you bring 
employees together with customers in customer homes whenever you start working with a company? I love your question. Thank you. Because this is the sweet spot. This is the, the secret to my work. Um, one of our clients, a large pharma client, um, they are the leader of respiratory uh, disease products. So when you have asthma, these are the guy which, which is running the show. And about a year ago, I caught up with them. They wanted me to uh, basically address their organization and transform it for the next century. Um, so my first question were, um, when did you last speak with the customer? And there was silence. And they said, never. Now, this company has been around for nearly 100 years, and they never spoken with the patient. So I said to them, why? They said, well, because of compliance. And this is so interesting. When you want to make changes in organizations, you will have an enormous amount of excuses. I call that the immune system, the defense mechanism for change. And that's exactly what I experienced here. So anyway, I worked with compliance. We managed to persuade them to take people from the organization with me into patients' homes. And we end up in this home of a lovely young lady, and uh, she has asthma. And I ask her during this conversation, while the client is sitting next to me, I ask her, how does it feel like, really, to have asthma? And she looked at me, and she has tears in her eyes, and she said, listen, I feel alone. I feel like I'm excluded from the tribe. I don't feel the sense of belonging that the other normal people have. That's her own words, okay? And then I said, so what do you do about it? She said, well, listen, I have a trick. And she opens her bag, and inside the bag, there's a straw. And she pulls out the straw, and she asks me to use the straw. She says, hold yourself for the nose, and then breathe for a minute. And I do this, and it's pretty tough. And then she says, that's how it feels to have asthma. And I always give a straw to new people I meet and tell them this is how I feel. And immediately, they feel a sense of empathy. Now, we take that. I took that concept. I stole it from her. We asked senior management to do that. And today, it's a rule in the entire global company that when they're employed, they have to spend the day briefing through a straw. And that has fundamentally changed the point of view from inside out to outside in. Now, all the products and all the services they're installing is based on empathy rather than sympathy. You write that if senior management is willing to sit down with its customers, the company is serious about change. And it makes me wonder, has that become like a litmus test of how successful you're going to be. Have you run into a lot of companies where they, they just don't want to talk to their customers? No, oh, yeah. I, I experience that all the time. Um, and, and there's so many excuses. I, I'll take three regions in the world and just give you examples of excuses. You know, for example, in the Middle East, I was asked in Saudi Arabia uh, to go in and address women driving. Uh, this is a very controversial topic. I've been very, you know, very pro, of course, of making women drive. Uh, until just two and a half years ago, women were not allowed to drive. So, so one of the things I did was, and I, I know you think I'm crazy now, but I dressed up as a woman, um, uh, wearing a burqa, so this black dress where you only can see the eyes, and I behaved like a woman for a couple of days to feel the pressure she receives when she are in a male-dominated society where there's absolutely no interest in women driving. And it had a profound impact on me. And I then later on said to uh, various organizations which I needed to secure sponsors to change this whole trend. And thank God it was changed about two and a half years ago. Um, 
And I said to them, you don't need to dress up like me, but I want you to go to women's homes, to families, to interview women and feel how they feel. And they said, no. And that's where I realized they were really not willing to change. Of, co of course, a lot of people were, don't get me wrong. A lot of amazing Muslims are so willing to change, but the people I dealt with were really not willing to change. And that for me gave me a very strong indicator of what should be done. How do you navigate the immune system in a country in order to change the law? Um, if you go to the US, I tried ex exactly the same for companies where the typical uh, argument is not that they don't want to do it. It is, I don't have time. Mm, yeah. And ID, can you can you know how many are you interviewing? 125? That's not serious. We at least are interviewing 6,000 people. Um, but there's no way you can measure the feelings of 6,000 people. I bet you after 15 interviews, you feel a sense of empathy. And I tried this with one of the largest food companies in the world where I took the CEO with me to China and we moved in with a long, young lady. Her name was Jenny. And we spent 24 hours in her home and we watched how she was interacting with her baby. And out of that, the CEO said to me, and remember, this is one of the largest food companies in the world. After that, the CEO went into a board meeting the day after and the board asked him about a research study that done with 17,000 people. And he said, listen, I don't want to listen to it. It has no impact whatsoever. I want to tell you about how it felt like to, uh, to be in a home of a, a young mother for 24 hours. And then I want all of you guys to do it. Guess what? That company changed. The other company, the one with the spreadsheet and we're too busy, never changed. And so that is a direct correlation. And, and it comes back to a theory I call the chicken theory. So some years ago, an experiment was done with chickens. They're put into a cage and stocked into the cage for half a year. And one day they're let out on the beautiful green grass. And the sun was shining and the birds were singing. And guess what? The chickens went out. And after 30 seconds, they went straight back in again. <laughs> <laughs> and I call that the chicken cage syndrome. Uh -huh. And most companies are suffering from that. And so the moral of the story is that they were able to get the chickens out of the cages, but it had to do with small changes, right? That's absolutely right, because there's two different ways you can get chickens out of the cage. You can either place the corn far away from the box. And, and this is basically what every typical CEO would do. We have a long-term vision, 10 years ahead, five years ahead. Well, guess what? An average CEO only lasts for five years in the job. And by the way, an average employee only stays in the job for two and a half years. Right? So no one really have interest in talking about 10 years ahead, uh, not even five years. So here's what I've learned. If you place the corn, let's imagine we have four chicken cages in a circle. And I place the corn in the middle and it's a very big distance from the chicken cage to the corn. Well, the first thing the chicken will do is to look at the corn and say, gee, that's far away. Okay, that requires a lot of effort. We don't know if it's going to work. And by the way, I'm not paid for it because there's no KPIs linked with this one <laughs> because we don't know if it's going to work. Mm -hmm. The chicken, It's a clever chicken, this one, of course. Um, then the second thing the chicken will do is to look at the other chicken cages and the other chickens will look at that chicken. So the chicken look at me, look at you, look at me, look at you. And they will all conclude, well, if that doesn't do it, if that doesn't move outside the cage, I don't want to do it. Okay? So they all go back in again. 
And that's typically what happens in organizations. And typically when you see transformations where the McKinsey's of the world, whoever it is, is not too big on them, but when that type of consulting companies come in, they do amazing transformational work, but it bounces straight back to default behavior very quickly. So there is a second way of going around this. And that is where you place the corn straight outside the cage, where the chicken can grab it, eat it, and look at the other ones, they're doing it as well. And then you place the corn a little bit further away. And in the real world, this is what I call 90-day interventions. It is small, bite-sized changes you're doing. They're easy to do. You see a win straight away. And this is the most important thing, Doc. You celebrate the victory throughout the entire organization to cement this new behavioral change. Because once you do that, it confirms to all the other chickens, my gosh, Look at this hero over there in the corner, which took that corn. I want to do the change as well. And suddenly you make a behavioral change happening in the organization. If you do place the corn too far away, nothing will happen, or perhaps an attempt, and you'll see that chicken failing halfway through because it's a 10-year horizon. But if you have small wins all the time, in particular now, when we're all stuck behind these screens, we more than ever need confirmation that what we're doing is right because we're deeply insecure right now because we can't stand at the water cooler anymore and discuss and, and build our brand. We can't do those pre-meetings and post-meetings. Everything we can deliver now is back-to-back -back Zoom meetings, it's spreadsheets and PowerPoint presentations. So because of that, we need to celebrate victories to confirm that what we're doing is the right thing. Well, and I appreciate you taking a break from Zoom <laughs> to let me interview you for the Marketing Book Podcast. <laughs> so, Martin, when you work with companies, you, you talk about how there are two organizational charts. Uh, one is given to you when you get there. You know, they'll say, here's, here's, our, here's our organizational chart. But there's another one that you later reveal. <laughs> how, do, how do you get the revealed one and, and, and what does it normally tell you? Well, it sounds kind of spooky what I'm telling you right now, but it's not. There's always an unofficial org chart. Yes. I remember one. It's just crazy. I mean, one of the companies uh, we're working with, which is one of the largest oil companies in the world, I mean, the HR, the person who was responsible for HR really was the CEO of the company. You couldn't see it on the, on the org chart, but you could see it in a different way. We realized that because we looked at the, the traffic of emails, where they went from. We didn't look at the emails, but we looked at where were the most traffic going on. And by the way, we looked at the chat rooms and we looked at when we did a survey, who did people listen to? And we realized the org chart, the real one was completely fake. The real one was really all about how people were interacting, who people trusted, who do I talk with in order to be elevated into a new position? If I want something to be done, who do I reach out to? That was the real one. The other one was the official one. So when you do org changes, you have to be aware of that if you, for example, want to implement a new change in the organization, a transformation, because this will cater for what the consumer likes, this will create better customer service, you quite often will be surprised about how difficult it is to implement, even though it's very logical. So what you do is you go into the system through the immune system and you talk to people at all level. And when you talk to the receptionist, when you talk to the security guard, you talk to the, the PA, you will realize that they will know who's actually the bottleneck. I call that quite often the frozen middle. 
It is the middle of the organization which are paralyzing chains. Not because these guys are bad people, because they're not, but because they're under so much pressure, they're cut to the bone, that the athlete are stopping progress because it will give them another layer of workload on top of their shoulders. So you have to understand the unofficial work org chart and then work backwards around that. So let's talk about another topic. You, you talk about how organizations tend to pivot inward and uh, the more inward focused and preoccupied a company becomes, it, the less it sees itself with any real uh, objectiveness or, or clarity. And that just, for me, brings to mind a company that tends not to be very successful because the most successful ones are more uh, observant or, or focused on their customers. How can companies become less inwardly focused and more focused on their customers? Because it seems like it's almost a gravitational pull that gets stronger and stronger as they focus more inward. I think there's multiple ways you can do that. Uh, just recently, I interviewed Neil Lindsay, which is the CMO of Amazon. Uh, he's, among others, responsible for Prime. And uh, Neil told me that they actually have a mindset, which is you have to work as this is your first day, not your second day. And literally, they've done that in Amazon. What's so surprising is that Amazon today have one million employees. Okay, mm. but they're still entrepreneurial and they're entrepreneurial because they behave as everything is day number one. They do not coordinate all the efforts internally, by the way. So it may be there's two or three different functions or divisions which are you know, speeding ahead with a new innovation. And actually, they may be doubling up. But as Neil is saying in this interview, he's saying to me, it doesn't matter because if you try to coordinate all this, you kill innovation and creativity. In the end of the day, you actually can adopt the best from each of the worlds. And I think this is one factor, which is you need to constantly reinforce the entrepreneurial spirit and somewhat artificially keep that alive so it becomes self-fulfilling in, in the way the company is managed. The other thing I tend to say, and which also I know is very much in line with what Amazon is doing, is to say, hey, why don't we focus on the customer? Now, this is interesting. Um, you should think that Amazon, which is, I think, the biggest aggregator of big data in the world. I mean, they own the server system, the cloud service, and they probably are number one in that field. You would be surprised if you go behind the scene because one single email from one customer complaining has more power internally than big data has. And they little will cir circulate around within management and they'll use that as a benchmark for how they're derailing. That is also, by the way, the foundation for how they innovate new opportunities. It's not necessarily the big data. As you, as you know, know, having read my book about small data, big data is all about correlation. And, and sometimes it goes wrong. I mean, a big data study showed that the more umbrellas you sell, the more it rains. That's big data, right? Small data is all about correlation. Uh, and it's also, also more about causation. It's all about uh, finding out the reason why, the hypotheses. And when you interview consumers, you actually will hear those stories and feel those stories through empathy. So that's what Amazon is doing. They're actually capturing that spirit and let that become the benchmark internally rather than just the big data. And, and I think my experience here is if you are a company with a series around this, you need to 
elevate the focus on the consumer inside the organization. You, you can do that by, for example, saying to new employees, hey, spend the first week in a consumer home, random consumers, in order to understand how they feel. Or you can say to, to, to the organization, why don't you find the three biggest frustrations you our customer have by spending time with them? Take a photo and let's hang all those photos on the wall inside of organization every Monday and pinpoint the one thing which is most frustrated. The one thing which is not common sense, but nonsense, and then work around it. That's the good start to do it. But do me a favor, Doc. Don't do the 10-year thing. Instead, bite-sized, small changes, allocate 90 days to change that lack of common sense. And then once you've done it, celebrate it. And slowly you'll see that common sense is restoring within your organization. Remember the caged chickens. <laughs> Exactly. They're sitting there. They're beautiful, but also um, it's hard. And I think I think you're probably experiencing this. I certainly I am with 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 Zoom, right? So we sit on Microsoft Team or Blue Jeans or uh, whatever application you're using. And have you noticed how there is no toilet breaks? <laughs> I know it's crazy, but think about it. All meetings are typically one hour, right? You, it's even difficult to plan a meeting which is only 55 minutes starting five minutes past because everyone is per hours. So how do you go to the bathroom? And by the way, how do you take care of your two-year-old which is screaming in the background, which needs attention? It is impossible. So people lie. They say, yeah, I just, uh, yeah. And then they, they put on the mute and they put on the standby photo and they sneak out. They come back again, pretending like they've heard everything. And guess what? They're now interrupting in a conclusion and taking everything back in time, right? The, the, the fact right now that we are not adopting to the new situation we're in now is crazy because we all stocked in a chicken cage. A lot of people think, that we will go back to the normal. We won't. We won't go back to work. We will go forward to work. Mm. We'll go into a new reality. And my sense is, let's get used to that and, and get the best out of it rather than cleansing on to the past and then adopt all the stupidities we had from the past and amplify them and establish this pipeline of bureaucracy now going straight into our bedroom. Instead, I would rather say, let's try to say, this is our moment to fundamentally change and question everything we did of the past, the way we employ people, the type of people we employ, the way we train people, and what really matters, and then restructure our day around it. Yes, in chaos lies opportunity, and that's such a great example. Uh, and, and, and you're seeing companies starting to, some companies starting to do that. Let me just ask about a couple other things that really kill common sense. And one of them is seems to me particularly cancerous. And that is politics. You write about how politics really is the enemy of common sense uh, in an organization. What are some of the warning signs of politics and what can companies do about that? Well, the warning signs of politics starts with when you receive the business card from a person. And if the title on that person's card is at least 17 words, you know there's a serious problem 
in that organization because they can't even define the role of that person anymore. Mm. Uh, so once that happens, you have the first warning sign. When you go into the reception and you had to fill out a form, which is 10 pages long, which is a waiver and an NDA and a lot of other things with a lot of other numbers next to each other, you know that we are on the right direction to see politics happening. When compliance suddenly have more power in the company, when HR suddenly become a legal function, it's a good path towards uh, politics. Politics, you have to remember, is as good and as bad as it is. It is my agenda which I'm forcing through in the organization. And the more politics and bureaucracy you have, the less people are incentivized in helping others. Uh, that's the reason why one of the key advice points I'm giving to people is I'm saying, hey, when you install your KPIs, one of the first KPIs should be based on a simple metrics, and that is, how well did you do? Okay, fine. Did you meet your revenue goals? The second one should be, and this is the scary part of it, the second one should be, how good are you at working with others and have others evaluating you? And if you get a score of two, you will basically multiply the first score with that and you'll get double. If you get one, it won't add anything. And guess what? If you get zero, you'll get zero in total. And that is a very important factor of KPI to install in a company because it will immediately start to remove politics because then it's not a self-centered management direction I'm taking and running. I'm certainly interested in helping others. Interesting. As long as they, it seems like as long as they are able to figure out how to measure how well you work with others. <laughs> yeah, and and of course that can be super complex as well. But I think uh, in the end of the day, what I've learned is it was a Chinese story. Um, no, actually, it was a Japanese story. I went to a, a Japanese bar many years ago, and this old lady she was serving sake for me, and there was a little wooden box, and there was a glass inside, and she poured the sake into the glass, and it went straight up to the edge, and then it continued. You know, floating into this box where this glass stood in and it went straight up to the edge. And I said, stop, 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 stop. And I said to her, why do you do that? And she said, here in Japan, we have a philosophy oh, always to over-deliver and under-promise. I think in organizations, if that's the first mentor you're living against, always to over-deliver and under-promise to your colleagues, we all establish a helping culture. The second thing is, you should, this is a mantra I'm always using, you should never do to children what you wouldn't do to your own. Well, in this case, you can say to yourself, you should never do things to other people that you wouldn't have people doing to you. That would be the second rule. And the third rule would be to cut away all the wasted time within the organizations. And you do that by basically structuring the meetings very differently, cutting them in half typically, having an agenda, and be aware of that there has to be an outcome. Straight away, you can't have a meeting to have a meeting. And it may be in that process, this would be difficult to implement straight away. So the first thing I always do, if it's possible to do, of course, in a COVID landscape, is to gather people on the floor in the office, is to switch the light off, it is to place a lamp or a little torch in the middle of the center, it is to play the sound of crackling fire. It is to project this, the, the uh, crackling fire and a bonfire on the wall and then have people in the dark telling about how they really feel working in the company. 
And if you do that every Friday afternoon, you will notice this becomes this bonfire moment. That feeling we all had when we were in the forest, we are sort of expressing these things. And that's also where all the frustrations will pop out, but it's also where you will notice there's a lot of stupidities going on we can remove. <laughs> Free up the time, and then you can do the two first points, and suddenly you're up running. Yes, and the book, we won't have time to go into it, but there's uh, so many great uh, tips for meetings, like you just mentioned, uh, an agenda and a goal. Put all the smartphones in a basket, and no laptops, yeah. no laptops. <laughs> but listen, this is, this is amazing. I mean, I, I don't want to mention a name here, but one of the biggest IT companies in the world operating with smartphones have banned phones in the company. <laughs> Not only that, they banned PCs and laptops inside the meeting rooms, and they produce computers, okay? That gives you a sense of the issue because here's the issue. When you are on your phone, you think you can multitask. Let me just be very clear. We cannot multitask. It's impossible. Neuroscience, time after time, show that. So what you have to be aware of is if you have taken the effort of sitting in a meeting, whether that's virtual or not, it's not for the purpose of checking emails. It is for the purpose of being present. If you cannot be present in an hour, let's cut the meeting down to half an hour and we're all present. Instead of us preparing the next PowerPoint presentation for the next meeting, right? So we prepared. And that's a little bit where we are today. The deliverable, we, we kind of assume we have to provide to justify our job is an endless stream of Excel spreadsheets and PowerPoints today. And the bigger deck, the bigger success you have. That's kind of the correlation we have in our minds. That's completely wrong. And, and, and that's the reason why one of the things I'm saying is, and as you know, I don't have a phone and I haven't had a phone for three years on purpose. We cannot book ourselves back to back uh, in those, those days where we have 10 or 15 Zoom calls because when are you going to do the work? Are you going to do that at 9 p.m.? And when are you going to really think and reflect? So what I tend to say to all my employees and to all our companies around the world, I say to them, half the number of meetings. I know it's difficult. You're not going to be, to be measured on how many meetings you're on. Instead, be super prepared before each of the meetings and create an impact. And if just all of you are doing it, suddenly we are lifting the bar. Martin, I had this idea about your book. And for the people listening to this who work for organizations where maybe some of these issues you're talking about resonate, and I think most people who work in an organization, this will resonate. And my idea was, do you think it would be a good idea to buy a copy of the book and mail it to the CEO of your company and not tell them who sent it <laughs> and see what effect it has? <laughs> well, I think you're reading my mind right now because guess what? On my website, I actually have a special offer for everyone and I'm not sure if you've seen this before. Just so you know, everyone listening, we did not plan this. When you go into, I love you, Daya. When you go into my website, you actually, if you buy your second copy, we will send the second copy with an anonymous card. Oh, I did is, not see that. I saw that. You did not see that? The webinar is on here, we, but yeah. We worked on that for quite some time. So actually, you can choose between 10 different funny cards, which is hint, hint, wink, wink uh, type of cards. And basically, the book is sent anonymously to uh, people's boss. Now, guess what? Oh, At wow. this stage, more than 4,000 people have sent anonymous books to their boss oh. because they are sick and tired of bureaucracy, red tape, bad excuses, and corporate BS. Oh, my goodness. Is that at martinlindstrom.com? 
is modernwisdom.com slash common sense. But there is a pop-up on the homepage. You just click on that and then you'll be taken okay. straight to gift your boss. And that's where you can send these horrible gifts to him where the only thing he will know is someone is thinking about him or her. Oh my goodness. No, it's, it, I, I, it, it looks like I didn't do my homework properly, but I had that idea. And you, <laughs> no. yeah, once again, Martin Lindstrom is, is way ahead of uh, all of us. So Martin, if readers took only one thing away from this book, what would you hope it would be? Well, I would say it is when a 264-page PowerPoint presentation kicks off with, welcome to our Christmas party planning committee. <laughs> I personally believe it's time to call the Ministry of Common Sense and put an end to all this once and for all. I mean, this is where we are. We only have one life. One third of that is spent in front of a screen. Or in an Do you really want to go through that pain? I think it's time to to stop all this and then question common sense and rebuild it back again to bring it back again to the company. Well said. And there's so much in the book that explains the specific actions that you can take. So at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to everything linkable to your websites and including to that special offer where you can anonymously send this book (laughs) to your management. It's kind of your idea, but it's not. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, I stumbled upon it without realizing that you'd already (laughs) thought about that. I should have known better. But I'm going to include links to to other things. And for you, dear listener, if you're listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found by going to this episode and clicking on the show notes link. The name of the book is The Ministry of Common Sense, How to Eliminate Bureaucratic Red Tape, Bad Excuses, and Corporate BS. The author is Martin Lindstrom. Martin, thank you for returning to the Marketing Book Podcast. Doug, always a pleasure. I really enjoyed the interview. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you found it helpful. Special thanks to this episode's sponsor, LinkedIn, where business is done. Every marketing campaign starts with one simple question. How do I ensure the people I want to target will be in the mindset to receive my message? And the answer is LinkedIn. To get a $100 advertising credit toward your first LinkedIn campaign, visit linkedin.com slash marketing book. That's linkedin.com slash marketing book. Terms and conditions apply. And speaking of LinkedIn, since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever situation you're in, invite me to connect with you on LinkedIn where we can chat and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast.